0: Okay, I hope you guys uh, hope you guys enjoyed the uh, the meal tonight. Let um, me just uh, thank Stephanie and Daniel for all they done to uh, help this class get it set up, get it going. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate all the work. Um, let me pray for us. We're gonna watch a film clip and then we'll uh, dive into week five. God, thank you for tonight. I pray, Lord, that um, you would prepare our hearts for, um, what can be, uh, a challenging, a difficult, certainly a delicate message. Um, God, I pray that I would get out of the way of, um, uh, and that you would speak and, uh, that we would be open to hearing things that, um, that, that can be challenging, Father. Um, and I pray that, that our love for you would increase, um, and that you would guide us during this time. I pray all this, Lord, in your name. Amen. (laughs) All right. So uh, I want to start tonight with this photograph. This is a poorly shot photograph that I took about 10 years ago. Um, There's someone's head that's kind of coming in the frame at the the bottom right side of the screen Uh, As my dad would tell you, I've never been much of a landscape photographer uh, And this can certainly attest to that fact This was taken um, uh, In Galicia in Spain And this is actually a graveyard that you're looking at And and I took this photograph uh, in 2003 When I had the opportunity to walk some of the Camino Santiago With a group of 100 Spanish and American college students um, and there's a few things that I remember from that time that really stick out. Uh, one is the first day of the journey. I was full of excitement, anticipation. I remember it was a real rainy morning, and I had showed up and I had to take this this train from Barcelona that was probably built during the Cold War and it was full of cigarette smoke and it was just beat down, and the train stopped because they were having mechanical malfunction so we we were we were kind of just stopped in the middle of nowhere on this train and and uh, everyone from the train got out and we were just hanging outside of the train along the tracks. It was sort of weird, sort of cinematic. I remember one of the best meals I ever had. It was after a long day of walking and we camped out next to this gorgeous lake um, and it had an incredible meal. I remember arriving into Santiago and the feeling that that, that, that had. But I'll never forget this. this. This I found is one of the more curious aspects of walking the way and it was it was having to pass Pass near a place of death. It was having to pass by a cemetery, and this was part of the journey. And it really struck me seeing these tombstones and these grave sites with the names of people. Um, and I'll never forget that that was a feature of walking the Camino Santiago. That you, you know, you would see great views, you would see the, the beautiful cathedral, you would experience places of rest. But this, a place of death, was was part of the journey. Welcome back to week five, Restless Pilgrims. We're going to talk tonight, uh, as I mentioned during the, during the prayer, uh, a very delicate subject. We're going to look at the dark night of the soul, that one of the features on the way is passing through places of death, experiencing darkness along the path. And what can we learn about that? What does it show us about God, about saints who have walked before us? Um, And what are some distinctions, some definitions that we can have uh, when we encounter those places of death, those unexpected, peculiar, oftentimes difficult and frustrating uh, moments of life? Uh, We've been talking about the way uh, we've been looking at our life as being lived on journey, looking at the first week that we're called to make a journey with God, uh, that he calls us out, like he called Abraham. He calls us out of a sphere that says, you know, life is basically you're born, you live, and you die. And then we're called to make a journey with God every day. Second week, we looked at how our lives can mirror the Exodus pattern, that God wants freedom for us, and that we will, like the Israelites, uh, be thrust into wilderness experiences, the discomforts, the challenges, the difficulties of life, in an effort to experience freedom and liberation. The third week, we talked about if it's true we're on a journey, and the journey can be long, how do we keep our hearts alive? And so we explored the, the role of having a proper understanding of both beauty and home, Last week, we looked at um, that much of life is lived in the valleys, and some of that is, is walking through the desert terrain, and that we're called to live a long obedience in the same direction. And as John Eldridge will tell you, that there, there are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God, and that the world is often looking for shortcuts, whether it's in terms of wealth, success, achievements, relationships, uh, but that because, because most of life is lived in the valley, That means that most of our life is spent living in the crucible of the mundane. A lot of ordinary details. And that oftentimes, just like week two when we talked about the Exodus pattern, we can look at so many of the monotonous details of our life as simply that. But really, what God is doing in us is He's creating a resilient soul, ultimately, so we become great. God wants to make His saints great. And the way that He does that is often through taking people through significant valley experiences. So we looked at the story of Moses, we talked about Corey Ten Boom and Dwight D. Eisenhower, and each of them experienced many seasons. Of valleys, many desert seasons. Tonight we're going to look at a feature of the way, <clears throat> excuse me, a feature of the way uh, that can be confounding, that saints have, have wrestled with. Uh, we're going to look at sort of two unique distinctions of, of walking through places of death. Um, next slide. And to start us off, um, there should be a, a previous slide, I think. Yeah. To to start us off, um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, this. (laughs) Pixar, of all things. Um, Now, Pixar Pixar has had a really interesting history as a studio. Uh, They've they've really experienced kind of renaissance in storytelling in the animated realm, in the animated world. Uh, Films beginning with Toy Story up until the most recent, Inside Out, which comes out this this next year, um, starring Amy Poehler. And uh, their history is unique because they've, they've been able to maintain an interesting relationship between a quality of, of work life for their employees and an excellence of craft. Uh, and Bob Ed Buster, the screenwriting guru and, and professor at USC, said that there was a pivotal moment in the history of Pixar that changed everything from them. And this, this, when this moment took place in the development of their second Toy Story film, Toy Story 2, Uh, It was the necessary and radical shift. And what John Lasseter and the other heads of Pixar decided to do is they were going to be unafraid and committed to going to the dark side of any idea, meaning that if they were going to show true depth and true character transformation, they were were going to be willing to take their characters to places that were very difficult. Um, And this is kind of a funny example if you think about it, but we have one of the main characters here, Woody, who in Toy Story 2... Learns a difficult truth about his past. And that's this, is that uh, Woody believed that toys were were really about serving children, that toys existed for the pleasure and the benefit and the joy that they would give to children. Uh, but he meets uh, another, another toy who's like him, who was kind of from the same era, the same packaging, and she says, listen, I got that. I, I believed that, that like you did, but I was discarded. I was thrown away. And really the only kind of future that we can hope for Uh, is to be a collectible. That's really it. And so if you've seen Toy Story 2, you find that it's really an emotional film. I mean, these are toys for crying out loud, but the dark side of the idea, (laughs) I know, the dark side of the idea that they were willing to explore is a theme of, what if your life doesn't really have any purpose? And that's kind of heavy material for a kid's film. But if you've watched the Pixar canon, what you find is a depth of storytelling that's there. They were willing to go to The dark side of any idea. You know, what they were tapping into, what Pixar has tapped into, is an eternal archetype, a storytelling archetype that essentially is this, is when a character makes a journey and they get towards the end of their journey, they're going to be plunged into a climactic moment, a belly of the whale experience, where we as the audience think that, and the character thinks that, the journey is potentially over. The character has experienced a kind of death. Uh, and so the irony is that in that moment the character is actually closer to their goal than they realize. But the character thinks that the path, in a sense, has disappeared. The journey is over. Uh, it's it's akin to something like in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo is on the steps on the doorstep of Mount Doom, and uh, he he decides to give up the journey at that point, and he's going to leave the volcano. And we, as the audience, are going no, and Sam is going no. But actually, we're we're, we're that much closer to. Uh, to the to the resolution and to the fulfillment of this character's development. If that's true uh, in regards to storytelling, uh, and if it's true in regards to a great understanding of how characters are developed, that theme or that reality plays itself out in our spiritual lives as well. Uh, in this clip that we just saw from The Way, Tom, uh, we're introduced to Tom here at the beginning of his journey. So we actually went back uh, in journey, in his journey, and we see that Tom uh, has to confront a difficult truth and difficult reality, and that's his son has died, and he has to he has to begin to grieve and walk through the grieving implications. And really, that's why he's on the way. It, it of course is for his son, and he wants to finish the journey. But really, what Tom is doing is he's he's grieving, and it's going to take the course of this journey to help him process. Through this own, through his own darkness, through his own dark night of the soul. Now, that's an expression. That term, the dark night of the soul, this first aspect, this first feature of the darkness, if you will, that we're going to look at this evening, uh, is a term that I was I was sort of familiar with uh, up until about two years ago. And and Chris and I we were joking. Uh, I think it was last Sunday, the Sunday before. And you know, there's there's a there's really quite a curiosity in culture with darkness. I mean, you, you see this especially on television shows and films, everything from Breaking Bad to Dexter, um, where people think that there's, there's a great authenticity and honesty to the experience of darkness. And that's that's true to to a certain degree. But Christianity gives us the kind of tools and resources that no other faith system, no other belief system, no other faith tradition offers in terms of how one can pass through the darker realities of life. Next slide. So um, I want to begin by talking about what is the dark night of the soul, because, um, you know, you you may be familiar with that term and wondering, okay, what exactly does that refer to? So we're going to talk about who wrote the dark night of the soul. Uh, What what was this individual thinking through, wrestling through? Um, Scripturally, how does that possibly connect to that? And then we're going to look at a number of different examples of people who have sort of walked through their own dark night of the soul experience. So what I'm, what I'm going to offer you in the beginning part of this class is a category to think in. <clears throat> For me, this was sort of a new category. And I remember when I first came across it, a good friend of mine who would really love the writings of St. John of the Cross, uh, I remember just sort of sitting on it and absorbing it and just really allowing it to gestate because it was different. It was, it was a different way of looking at my faith and perhaps what God might be up to. So who, who is the author of this phrase, the dark night of the soul, and what is it? Let me, let me begin to walk us through that. Well, uh, in the 16th century, there lived uh, two individuals, Teresa of Avila and John, or who had become John of the Cross. John was a, a Carmelite friar, And he was educated at the University of Salamanca. He was highly educated. Um, And he went through his own, what he would call a dark night of the soul experience. And that was really birthed and surrounded by his friendship with Teresa. Teresa was about two decades older than John. And she uh, went into the convent in the Carmelite uh, uh, convent system at a really early age. And for two decades, she struggled greatly with a number of things. She struggled with pride. She struggled with feelings of insecurity, of inferiority. And a lot of it was built around this idea that she believed that God had spoken to her. But those that were above her and even some of those that were around her challenged that and said, is is that really true? Did that really happen to you? So she had a lot of insecurity, and she really depended, and she would say inordinately, on the opinions of others for, for two decades. Well, as she, as she got into her late 40s, she started to experience more freedom because she started to relinquish any sort of expectation she had of God and what God would ask of her. And she said, you know, really, God, whatever it is that you want, and that became more real and true to her in her heart. And at that time, she really wanted to reform uh, the Carmelite System, because in that day and age, uh, church and politics mixed a lot differently than they do today. There was, uh, there was, in a sense, not not as much distinct lines. They were quite blurred in terms of how authority structures were set up uh, uh, in in the European culture. Uh, and so Teresa, she uh, she was really bothered by the fact that there was a lot of material excess in the convent system that sometimes people would go in there almost to, to be like in a country club, if you will. She was bothered by the fact that there wasn't contemplative prayer. There wasn't time for reflection. And she found in John, who she affectionately called uh, the little saint, because John was, was quite small in stature, uh, she found in him uh, a friend and someone who she could partner with in this reformation. And so they set out to do this, and they were successful. But John then experienced his own dark, dark night of the soul because he was thrown into prison for trying to do this. He was tortured, he was abused. He kept up his writing during that time, and he eventually escaped and left and continued to write. Believe it or not, John is actually considered the patron saint of poetry uh, in Spain, and both he and Teresa were poets in their own right. Um, <clears throat> the, the dynamics of their personality were interesting because John being highly educated, someone who perhaps was more cerebral, was a great partner for Teresa who really longed and wished she would have had the kind of seminary training that John had. And so they were able to really offset each other's strengths and weaknesses. Ultimately, what they both believed is that all of life, and I had mentioned this the second week, is that all of life is a love affair, that they, they believe that the experience of living life and knowing God is ultimately grounded in a love story and they were committed to a passionate, uh, deeply personal relationship with God. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to give people a framework to understand uh, what happens in the soul. So let me, let me read to you a verse from, uh, from Romans that we're familiar with. This comes from Romans 8, uh, 26 to 27. And it's this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts know what it is, the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, Let's go to the next slide. Gerald May says this about Teresa and John. "Both Both John and Teresa pay relatively little attention to the active aspect of the spiritual life because they know from experience that our own autonomous efforts can accomplish very little. They are much more interested in the passive dimension, the work God does within us, seemingly beyond our own will and intention. So that's reflective of this verse that I just read, is that is that the Holy Spirit works within our souls uh, to a degree that it, it's, it's almost as if there's, there are no words to express what is happening, what is going on. But what John and Teresa attempted to do was to give definition to that experience, particularly in the experiences of life that they would come to, to phrase and coin as the dark night of the soul. Now, this idea, this concept isn't unique to and wasn't founded by John. Uh, he, just, he just sort of took the, the baton in, in, in the race and, and, and moved it forward. Um, so that's what we're going to look at. Um, Let's begin to kind of dig into, all right, so what is the dark night of the soul, um, and what are some of the features of it? Next slide. Uh, Next slide. Um, Thomas Merton helps us out here. He says this, God who is everywhere never leaves us, yet he seems sometimes to be present, sometimes absent. If we do not know him well, we do not realize that he may be more present to us when he is absent. Than when he is present. Let me say that last part again. He may be more present to us when he is absent than when he is present. Have you ever had an experience of life in your relationship and walk with the Lord where you felt like he just doesn't seem there? Uh, I'm I'm praying. I'm engaged in the spiritual disciplines. I'm involved in church. Uh, for whatever reason, though, God seems and feels absent. That can be for some believers. I think probably all who go through those times, that can feel and be a very lonely experience. Because how do you explain that to someone? How do you, how do you in a sense, even feel like you can justify that? Uh, well, John and Teresa give us some really helpful insights to that. Um, next slide. So what is, as John would say, la noche oscura? What, what is the dark night of the soul? Well, first we need to define what it's not. Uh, there are some common misunderstandings. When you hear the dark night of the soul, as we joked about, you may think of Bane and Batman and Catwoman, that it's about vigilante crime fighters and and really morally disturbed people and, and uh, guys that paint their faces and like to set money on fire. That's, that's another kind of darkness that John would, would give the word tiniables for, which is the darkness of sin that can corrode the soul of a human being. This is not what John and Teresa are talking about when they say, the dark night of the soul. <clears throat> it's by no means sinister or evil. Mary Poplin, in her book Finding Calcutta, which we'll dive into in just a bit, says this Bonaventure described these dark nights as the experience of diving into God's darkness, where, only, where one only experiences the silence of God, the trials of Job, David, Paul, and Peter, and all the prophets, poets, kings, philosophers, and fishermen who wrote the books that became the Bible, testified to periods of downcast souls when they despaired of life itself. Uh, the dark night of the soul, as we, begin to, as we begin to dive into this, is that it can feel sometimes like there's a dryness that's just there. There's an absence that's there. There's, there's a loss of or a lack of emotional fervor, perhaps even connectedness and intimacy that a believer may have once experienced in their life. And that can bring about confusion. Uh, and even, as Mary Poplin says, despair of life itself. If if a person is so connected with God and then something happens in life where uh, for seemingly mysterious reasons, that's gone. That's not there. Um, it can lead to a lot of questions. Uh, Gerald May says this, in the same way that things are difficult to see at night, the deepest relationship between God and person is hidden from our conscious awareness. So at some point uh, in in your journey of faith, uh, you're bound to experience these questions. God, where are you? What is wrong with you? Why are you so distant? God, what is wrong with me? Why do I feel so dry inside? Why do I not seem to care about you the way I used to? What have I done wrong Uh, next slide it will be one of spiritual confusion and dryness often with the goal of moving us away from the reliance of feelings to the reliance on God himself so what 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 is happening as John and Teresa will tell you is in these in these feelings in these experiences where you can almost seem like you're a stranger to yourself because of the dynamics of what has happened in your faith um, that there's an emotional desert that's there. And then, and then there's a movement towards, and this, could, this can happen too, is that it's, it's almost like you start to see a more painful rea- reality of who you are. For whatever reason, it can, there can be this sort of synonymous experience where there's a dryness with God, there's a, there's a, there's a seeming distance of God, and then there's also this, this, this awareness that, man, I'm not as great of a person as I used to be. And so you can feel bad. You can feel sort of hideous. And then out of that, out of that response, a person, a saint, can make a lot of unhelpful responses. Okay, so what's happening? If if, if this is true that a, a person can feel and experience this way, what might God be up to? Well, um, in looking at that verse from Romans, We can suppose that there is a hidden transformation that's taking place. And you think about being out in the darkness, right? You can't really see what's going on. You can stumble and and fall over. Um, The path can feel like it's disappearing. But in this particular instance, there's a beautiful irony, and it's this, is that in the darkness, we can see better than if the light was fully there, if we fully knew what was happening and what was going on. That may seem a little bit puzzling at first, so let me, let me just dig a little bit deeper, and I think it will, will, will provide some clarity. So what is some of the hidden transformation? What, God, what, what might God be up to during these experiences of life? Uh, well, Gerald May says this, is that one of the biggest lessons and another gift of the dark night is the realization that I'm not as much in control of life as I would like to be. I'm not as I'm not in, in, in control of life as I would like to be um, associate professor of theology and philosophy at Biola University. John Coe talks about how in Scripture, what we see is an understanding of development, right? When you first come to know the Lord, we're equated to as infants. We need this, We need the spiritual milk. And Paul exhorts believers. He calls them to grow up in the faith, to mature uh, paralleling the same experience that we have when we grow up in life, right? We all are born as infants. We're all born as babies. We go into infants and then toddlers and then as children and as a teenagers and then young adults and then adults, middle age, so on and so forth. That, that experience, that physical reality of life, mirrors what happens spiritually, Let me give you another metaphor to kind of paint what's going on. For those of you that are married can talk about this. When you first met the one that you love, uh, you probably had those feelings of euphoria, of wonder, being ecstatic. Scientists will tell you, forgive me for, for ruining the romance, but scientists will tell you that that generally lasts around one to two years, right? And then after that, as marriage counselors might tell you, that's when the hard work of being married starts to set in. Regardless of, of whether or not that's, that's quite been your experience, for those of you that have been married, can attest to the fact that if you're married for a certain amount of time, you realize that you can't just rely on feelings alone. Something deeper has to happen. The practices of commitment, uh, of, of sacrifice—certainly uh, feelings are important—but if that's all that a marriage is based on, well, we can look at the statistics, right? Um, so that 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 experience of life, being married or growing up, is really what happens to us spiritually. When we first come to know the Lord, we have the experience of kind of being like an infant. And so what John and Teresa would tell you is that a lot of times those feelings that you have, not to invalidate it, but a lot of times those sentiments, those affections, those feelings that you have when you first come to know the Lord, some of that, perhaps maybe a lot of that, is you actually attaching yourself to the feelings and thinking that that's God instead of going to God himself. God in His grace wants you to connect to Him and wants to begin to grow you in the process of being uh, a spiritual pilgrim, of going on the journey, Uh, and you'll have a lot of those exciting feelings. And some of you may attest to, after you've walked with the Lord for a while, uh, you may be like, you know, when I first came to know God, it was just, it was so exciting. And then after that, there was a season where it was just, it wasn't quite there anymore. Welcome to the dark night. This perhaps is your first, could be your first dark night experience where God may be pulling himself back or disallowing those feelings or at least showing you more of reality because his ultimate goal is that you love him for himself and not the feelings and that we can potentially run the risk of relying too much on our feelings of God as opposed to loving God for who he is. You with me? Okay. All right um the next element is this hidden transformation we realize and talked about week two how freedom is a crucial aspect of being a human being but freedom is very difficult and the way that god liberates a soul is often through mirroring the exodus pattern but it also happens in these dark night of the soul experiences but why would it happen at night what would be the purpose of that Let me read to you a very interesting passage uh, in his book, The Dark Night of the Soul by Gerald May. If we are honest, I think we have to admit that we will likely try to sabotage any movement toward true freedom. If we really knew what we were called to relinquish on this journey, our defenses would never allow us to take the first step. Sometimes the only way we can enter the deeper dimensions of the journey is by being unable to see where we're going. John's explanation of the obscurity goes further. He says that in worldly matters, it is good to have light, so we know where to go without stumbling. But in spiritual matters, it is precisely when we do think we know where to go that we are most likely to stumble. Thus, John says, God darkens our awareness in order to keep us safe. When we cannot chart our own course, we become vulnerable to God's protection, and the darkness becomes a guiding night, a night more kindly than the dawn. Let me say it again. Whether we experience it as painful or pleasurable, the night is dark for our protection. We cannot liberate ourselves. Our defenses and resistances will not permit it, and we can hurt ourselves in the attempt. To guide us toward the love that we most desire, we must be taken where we could not and would not go on our own. I remember when I first read that, I was like, wow, that's that's deep, man that's wow that's good that's good and i'm sure i'm sure that that we can we can begin to think of experiences of life where we felt like we were stranger to ourselves and perhaps god even felt like a stranger to us i this happened to me um uh when i was in college as as a junior Uh, i was going through kind of a personally difficult time Uh, uh, a grandfather of mine had passed away and uh, and it was post 9 and 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 that was that was incredibly difficult. But I think for me, the hardest experience of that time is that I felt I felt a stranger to myself. I felt internally like everything was upside down, uh, and I was involved in church and connected to friends and whatnot. Um, and and that's what was so puzzling to me and so disturbing. It's if 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 this was happening inside, was was God trustworthy? Was he safe? The, the, the spiritual equilibrium that I had felt like I based my whole life around was suddenly in turmoil and I didn't really know what to do with myself it was really really difficult um, at that time um, I think this this may have been this may have been helpful uh, things to kind of think about and remember if this is your experience this may be your experience right now and here's what's really tough about talking about the dark night of the soul this is very, it's very mysterious um, uh it's also, it's also very abstract, um, and Gerald May will tell you that if 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 you think you're in the dark night of the soul, you're probably not in the dark night of the soul. If you don't think you're in the dark night of the soul, you probably are. Frank, it almost sounds like, sounds like a line out of a Seinfeld episode or something. Yeah. Um, and the other reality of this, too, is that we don't go through a dark night, as John and Teresa would tell you, just once. It's not like a one-time shot. You have your dark night moment, you're on behind the music on VH1 now, and you've had you know, your, your rags to riches story. It's, it's circular in the sense that it, it, it tends to play itself out a number of different times, and usually when it happens, it can be disorienting and shocking. Okay, so what are some things to think about and to remember? John H. Coe, Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy, gives us this. Next slide. No, nope, no, that is that, sorry. Um, the dryness and lack of feelings may be God liberating your attachment to senses, and it's not necessarily because of your sin. Uh, particularly for those of us older brother types, um, we like to think that uh, some, we can, we can tend to think that so much of what happens in this life is because of what we are doing or we're not doing. And the thing to be mindful of, and to be careful of is if this is your experience or you, you do encounter this experience, uh, again, in life, is don't necessarily think it's because of your sin. Now, it, very, it, it may very well be. You know, the person that completely removes himself from community, uh, just binges on television shows that they shouldn't be watching in the first place, decides to flip the bird to everybody that they see when they drive along the highway, that person may not be experiencing a dark night of the soul. It may be something else, right? Just outright rebellion. Um, but if you're sincere and you're, you're, you're seeking after God, don't necessarily think it's as a result of, of sin. Next slide. Um, the disciplines in a dark night become a mirror into the reality of the heart for the purpose of character transformation in the spirit. So if you, if you find that you may see, you know what, I'm not as great of a person as I thought I, I thought I am, that's a grace. That's actually a good thing. It doesn't feel good. And a lot of times because we live in the West, and in the West, everything is about feeling good and self-expression. That, that cultural air has become toxic to us, and we breathe and live in that all the time. So often when we don't feel good, and we don't feel good in our relationship with God, we might wrongly think that there's something wrong in this whole journey aspect. Well, it could be God's grace saying to you, actually, I'm just, just pulling back a little bit more, and I'm, and I'm showing you more of who you really are. I think if we, if we fully saw who we really were in the completeness of that and this is extra biblical right now, but if we fully saw who we, we really were and we fully saw who God really was, all of our heads would explode. It would just be too much we couldn 't handle it we couldn 't take it in. Think of it like if you 've ever had a fish and you want to feed the fish in the fish tank, uh, just when that shadow looms over the fish, the fish hide and they, they go into you know the other, the opposite end of the tank well it 's kind of like how we relate with God, and so God has to be very, very uh, tactful and circumspect and shrewd and and insightful in how he engages each of the souls that he's created. And this perhaps is one way that he does this. Uh, This third point is very, very tough, uh, is resist the need to spiritually fix yourself. Um, You know, there's just, I got to read more sermons. I got to go buy more books. I got to have more conversations. This was Teresa's experience. She struggled with this for two decades. She probably would tell you she felt like a Carmelite nun loser. Why, why am I struggling with this so much? And eventually she got to a point where it was, it was sort of a, I, I just can't do it anymore. I, I just continually more and more relinquish where I I, I just got to keep, I got to give this thing up and not, not worry as much as my participation, but in a sense, trust that God is at work, that God really is at work. And that, again, is some of the grace of this time is that because we, it 's like it 's it's like we 're out of gear we 're out of shift and, and, and you know it 's like a bad car that just won 't run properly. We can feel like that in our soul, and God is saying, I got this i 'll take care of this. This is ultimately up to me and not to you. Uh, this next point is that be faithful to the spiritual disciplines, even though and this is where marriage is such a helpful illustration is that even though you don 't feel perhaps in sync as you once were uh, that doesn't mean that you should negate the practice of being a believer. So being in community, spending time in God's word, of course we, can, we run the risk of being legalistic, but this doesn't give us a license to just say, okay, I stopped caring. Teresa never stopped caring. John never stopped caring. But what they did stop caring about was performance would be the antidote to fix this. Uh, the last element is this, is that in the midst of this purgation and painful self-awareness, the soul comes to its own end. At this point, it is best to allow the soul to remain in peace and quietness. Uh, A soul at rest is not something that's come without great challenge and great difficulty. Even Paul talks about, I have learned to be content." So there's, there's, a, there's, there's an active dimension to that where he was engaged in the struggle, but there's also a surrender aspect as well. There, there's tension in the midst of this, and, and I hope that as, as, we're, as we're talking through this, you're feeling some of that tension, and I think that's a good thing because there is a tension uh, that is there. Um, experiences of the dark night. Um, well, let me, let me begin by giving uh, one example. Um, Uh, And it's the example of Mother Teresa. And I think Mother Teresa is one of the figures from this past century that has been so wrongly misunderstood for so many different ways. I mean, you usually hear the example of, well, I'm not as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. And I think she would have hated that example. Um, A a woman who came to know Mother Teresa uh, is, is a professor by the name of Mary Poplin. And she became a believer later in life. Um, and she had a crisis of faith where she didn't know what to do with herself. She was working in the university system, and and was that really a spiritual thing to do? And so she was compelled to want to spend some time with the Sisters of Charity in in India, and so she wrote a letter, and she received a response back about six six weeks later, and she gets this, like, this kind of, this older manila envelope, and she could tell that the way that Uh, The return address was was typed. It was used with an old typewriter, and that was really intriguing. And she opens it up, and there's a little note inside that says, "Come, come as quickly as you can. So she does. She leaves everything. She goes to Calcutta, and she volunteers her time for a season of life. I think it was maybe about eight months to a year. And she talks about working with Mother Teresa, and this was just... Uh, Several years before Mother Teresa died and what the Sisters of Charity did in in India and what they were about and, and a lot of the misconceptions that people had surrounding Mother Teresa and her ministry, one of which, and I find this just so refreshing, is that people often regard Mother Teresa as this just... Just totally sweet, demure woman that would never raise her voice. And Mary would tell you, actually, she she had a very tender heart. But Mother Teresa was a tough lady. I mean, she she had to go. She endured a lot by living in Calcutta. Uh, but she would often she she would often speak her mind. She was um, she was a very strong individual because of her faith in Christ. There was this one moment that Mary recounts in her book where uh, someone expressed a kind of adoration that Mother Teresa was not happy with. Oh, it's Mother Teresa. She's like, no, 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 no. Don't you dare do that to me. You do that to him, but you don't do that to me, Uh, speaking of Christ. Well, Mother Teresa had her own dark night uh, of the soul, And, and we have the records of that because of the letters that she wrote, her spiritual director's. Um, and this was a great struggle for her because she was fully committed to to believing that christ was was her spouse that she uh that she was um his little saint and she she had this just This this passionate devotion to God, and she encountered a a season of life where God just seemed totally distant to her, and it was really tough. And she says this, where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. I have no faith. So many unanswered questions uh, live within me. I'm afraid to uncover them because of blasphemy. If there be a God, please forgive me. Did I make the mistake of surrendering blindly to the call of the sacred heart? The work is not even a doubt, because I am convinced that it is his, not mine. Not even a single simple thought or temptation enters my heart to claim anything in the work. In spite of all, this darkness and emptiness is not as painful as the longing for God. What are you doing, my God, to one so small? If this brings you glory, if my suffering satiates your thirst, here I am, Lord. With joy, I accept all to the end of life, and I will smile at your hidden face, always. So, like the Psalms, she's deeply honest with God. She's deeply honest with her feelings of disorientation, of disconnection. She even questions the work that she felt called to, that she, uh, she would tell you that she, she, she had a number of mystical experiences where God had called her to this work in India. And even after that, she's, she's wrestling through, did I make a mistake? And I find that really refreshing because I'm sure those of us that have, have encountered these seasons of life that are just so confusing, disorienting, we may question ourselves and the decisions that we make. And what's beautiful is that we have the freedom and the permission to do that, but this also points us to the truth of that uh, Mother Teresa ultimately would submit herself back to God. Whatever, whatever you would ask of me, whatever you would demand of me, I, I give to you. You know, Last week we talked about what does it mean to be great and the, and, the, and the way that we answered that question was true greatness is willing submission to God. That that's, the, that's the ultimate definition of what greatness is. And Mother Teresa has the beautiful quote of, you know, God, uh, when being interviewed by a reporter, you know, did God, you know, do, do, you, do you see yourself as a success? And she's like, no, no, you, you're thinking in, in a completely wrong category. God doesn't necessarily call, us to, call me to be successful. He calls me to be faithful. Whatever the circumstances. So let's take a break and we'll move on to our next movement. (laughs) Welcome. Oh, it's so good. It's really good. Okay, guys. I was telling Stephanie my cue to uh, my cue to start the class back up is when I see you guys enjoying yourselves too much and then <laughs> kill the party. <laughs> um, I know I promised this. I think the second week, and I've I've been bad on this promise, but I will have for you all next week uh, at the very least an outline that has all of the books that um, have inspired and been referenced in this class. Um, so um, it's been it's been really fun. It's just been such a joy to be able to curate. Uh, this kind of material. And, and so um, tonight's book, one of the books tonight that uh, we've been talking about is The Dark Night of the Soul by Jerry Sitzer, um, also Finding Calcutta by Mary Poplin. Um, and now we're going to move into um, this, next, this next movement of experiencing darkness. Um, and, uh, you know, in thinking about the first week of the class, I had shared the story of Jack Hit, that journalist who at 35 wanted to walk the Camino Santiago. And he was really intrigued with pilgrimage, because making a pilgrimage is the, is the willing submission to a fixed path. You have to, as a pilgrim, submit yourself to the features, uh, and that, that's, that's, that's counterintuitive to the experience of the West. I think that's a really helpful distinction in understanding the Christian life, that these different features of the path that we've been looking at are, are really counterintuitive, and that... Um, Generally, I think what God calls us to are counterintuitive experiences of life that, that really kind of buck at our, our, our natural flinches or, or inclinations. And that's really true with this next this next movement. Um, in his book, "A Grace Disguised," uh, Jerry Sitzer recounts um, a very, very excruciating experience. Uh, he uh, is, and, and at the time was working as a professor in the Pacific Northwest. He and his wife had a great relationship, and she uh, homeschooled their kids. Uh, and during one summer, she wanted to. They wanted to take the kids to um, an Indian reservation so that they could experience a Native American powwow. And they were when they were driving home that night, and it was Jerry and his wife and their kids. I think he, I think he had, I think it was five. It was a five, four kids. It's four kids, and um, and Jerry's mom, and they're driving home late at night, and a car uh, from the other side of the, on the other lane. Uh, swerves over, a drunk driver hits Jerry's car, and his wife, his mom, and two two children one of the, one of his wife, mother, and four year old daughter die immediately on impact. Um, <clears throat> so Jerry talks about in this book uh, going through the experience of loss and and the experience of grief, and how how he struggled and continues to struggle through what he calls a catastrophic loss. And he also uh, offers some helpful guidelines in, in how a person responds to loss. And he touches on a, a universal theme, is that loss is familiar to all of us, whether we're quite young or we're older, somewhere in between. Uh, we all have experienced loss of of many kinds, and as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, is that this was the, the the thrust of why Tom was on his journey was to grieve the loss of his son, and it was a a very difficult one. It was it was very rugged at times, and and would demand a lot of him. Um, and I think it's something. If if it's true that all these different features of the way are counterintuitive, I think. The understanding of grief, of encountering this kind of darkness, is one that we just naturally don't understand. We don't uh, naturally do very well. Uh, And yet, our response to loss uh, shapes who we are. Uh, And it continually shapes who we are with what's happened to us uh, in the past and what happens to us currently and what will happen. Uh, And so, Really, the dark night of the soul can be seen as kind of a first movement of response to loss and and we looked at some helpful guidelines of that. so what I want to do in this in this in, in this latter half of the class is I want to just talk about some of the features of loss, of the features of of grief of, of being plunged into this kind of darkness, a kind of darkness that Mother Teresa experienced, a kind of darkness that that Tom experienced, uh, and then look at what are some what are some responses that Jerry has learned and continually. Would go back to and pull from and utilize as resource um, in going through this. So, what are some of the features? And again, this is sort of this is a really broad overview, as was my discussion of the Dark Night of the Soul. Um, I would recommend um, all three of these books tonight, particularly the Dark Night of the Soul, uh, for that experience and then for for understanding loss. So, this is really an introduction, if you will. Um, well, the first thing that that Jerry talks about is that when when we encounter loss we experience what he calls the amputation of the familiar self. Loss creates a barren present as if one were sailing on a vast sea of nothingness. Loss thus leads to a confusion of identity. Since we understand ourselves in large measure by the role we play and the relationships we have, we find ourselves in vertigo when these things are changed or lost. I sometimes feel like I'm a stranger to myself. Uh, This happens all the time. It can happen at a level where... Uh, maybe we were we were we had one position in a company, and then we moved to another position in a company. A good friend of mine, who I work with, he was recounting uh, just some of the challenges of he's in a he's in a role with more responsibility, and it's great. But he was talking about how you know it, it was it was tough, and there was emotions that he was experiencing, and it was. And I, and I told him I said you know there's there's an experience of loss that's happened right now. Uh, we can we can shy away from that, particularly in the West. We might think that. Really, loss is only appropriate when someone dies, so it's at a funeral and then after a funeral. and other than that, well, I don't know, maybe we're just making too big a deal of things or whatnot um, but loss is loss is a continual feature of living life uh, living life out of Eden and walking this journey, and that we are called to we are called to suffer we are called to live in a world of loss so that rings probably very true. I mean, this was Jerry's experience where he was, uh, he was a married man, and in an instant he was no longer a married man. He had a mother, and in an instant his mom was gone. Uh, one of his children in an instant was gone. Uh, his own sense of, of well-being was just completely ripped from underneath him in a very uh, dramatic way. Uh, but that, that happens continually, and it's like there's a phantom pain uh, that exists. Shortly after that, uh, it's as if darkness itself is is closing in and that, that a person, given the experience of loss, uh, whether it's a job loss, whether it's a relational loss, whether it's the death of a family member, uh, whether it's moving from one state to another, uh, whether it's being a part of a church and then going to another church, uh, whatever it is, uh, to varying degrees, there can be at times a sense of of darkness closing in, and here's the here's the irony: as a culture, like I said, we are obsessed with we have this this unhealthy fascination with 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 darkness. Yet at the same time, when it happens in our lives, we are utterly disturbed and frightened by it, and don't want any part of it. We love to gawk and look at it, but when it when it happens to us. Uh, we want to do what Jerry wanted to do in a dream that he had, and in this dream that he had, after he had, after his wife and his mother and his child had died, uh, he was he was he was trying to catch the setting sun, and he was running he was running east, and he was trying to catch the setting sun. Um, I'm sorry, he was running west, and he was trying to catch the setting sun, and he couldn't. And he got to a place in this dream where the darkness enveloped and surrounded him so much so where he felt, as he would say, a terror in his soul and that that darkness would live and exist in him forever. His sister Diane had an interesting response. She said, you know, you're running in the wrong direction. You're you're trying you're trying to catch the sun, if you will. And she said what you need to do is you need to turn around in the opposite direction and you need to run east, headlong into the darkness. You need to run into the darkness because there you have a chance. There is where when east meets west, you'll have a chance of engaging the light so he says this the decision to face the darkness even if it led to overwhelming pain showed me that the experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment of our lives instead the defining moment can be our response to loss it is not what happens to us that matters as much what happens in us darkness it is true had invaded my soul but then again so did light both contributed to my personal transformation so when loss happens Generally, the thing that we don't want to do, that we flinch at, is following, following Christ into the darkness, being willing to travel through this place of death, this place of darkness. But it is absolutely critical. It is absolutely necessary. Jerry goes on to say this, I did not get over lo- the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life, like soil receives decaying matter, until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took a permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. Well what are some of the consequences though if if we if we aren't willing if we aren't willing to, to walk into the darkness with God uh, and go to those places that are very difficult and to experience the painful emotions that are sure to come. What happens when a person decides, you know, I don't want to grieve. I don't want to fully enter the grief of this person that had passed away. I don't want to enter into the grief of this relationship that went south, that didn't happen. I don't want to enter into this experience of losing this job, this ministry opportunity. I don't want to fully go there because if I go there, I may, I may be completely lost. I may come to an experience of, of ruin. It reminds me of, uh, next slide. It reminds me of a scene from one of my fil- favorite films, uh, the, the movie *In America*, and it's the story uh, uh, based on, based loosely on the true story of a of a of an Irish family that emigrates from Ireland to uh, Hell's Kitchen in New York uh, in uh, in the '90s. And the family leaves Ireland with a a devastating secret, and that secret is that. The youngest member of this family, a four-month-old boy named Frankie, had died while, while falling down the, the family stairs. Um, and the family as a whole doesn't really want to reconcile with this. It's, it's completely shaped who they've become, and it's completely shaped the personality and the makeup of this family. And so there's this really poignant scene where Sarah tells her husband, Johnny, she says this, because Johnny is an actor. He wants to be an actor in New York, and he can't get any parts. And she says, you're the only actor in the world who can't lie, Johnny, even for the sake of your kids, and he's really upset. What does that mean? And she says, if you can't touch somebody you created, how can you create something, somebody that'll touch anybody? And he's like, what are you going on about? And she says, acting, Johnny, and bringing something to life. It's the same thing. That's why you can't get a job acting, Johnny, because you can't feel anything. Johnny is living in a perpetual state, almost kind of a, a living purgatory, if you will, because he refuses to fully enter into the implications of what it would look like if he had to face the darkness, if he had to fully face the truth, and all of the turmoil that would come from the fact that his son died and he's not coming back. He's not coming back in this life. Uh, and it's utterly traumatizing. And so this happens, this, this dramatic example happens far too often in our lives because we each have experienced loss like Tom, like Sarah and Johnny, um, like Jerry. But I think there are oftentimes there's a wrestling match with how far we really want to go with God, how, how far down that path are we really willing to go. Um, you know, when the, when the event took place in Jerry's life, uh, um, shortly after there was a, a tree in his backyard that was once this beautiful tree and a freak lightning storm came through and it it just obliterated the tree and all that was left was a stump and he looked out into the backyard and he saw this stump and jerry felt like this is me completely exposed this 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 once beautiful existence that i had is now gone and all that's left is just this this fragmented part of something that was once magnificent beautiful and offered shelter um but what he, what he noticed over time is that as he, as he began to, uh, to go through the grieving process, to walk through the darkness, regardless of what would happen, and at times it was very turbulent and very emotionally chaotic, is that um, flowers started to grow around this stump, and then the children started to plant uh, flowers around the stump, and then they even put pavers out around that stump. And for Jerry, this was his reality: is that yes, it's, it, the sorrow is real, and it's taken up residence in my soul. And I may never, most likely, never get over what had happened. Uh, but life can still exist, and we really have two choices. We always have two choices as we travel along the way, and as we experience loss in these places of darkness. Is that we can stop the journey, we can stop moving and walking on the journey, or if we encounter a place of death. And God is leading us through. We walk. We go with him into it. He says this, The choice to enter the darkness, then, does not lead us along an easy course. The darkness is not dispelled as quickly as it is for frightened children who, scrambling to find the lights, which in a pitch-black basement, erase the fear as the moment light floods the room. The darkness lingers for a long time, perhaps for the rest of our earthly lives. Even if we really do overcome our own pain, which is doubtful in my mind, We nevertheless find ourselves more sensitive to the pain of others and more aware of the darkness that envelops the world. The choice to enter the darkness does not ensure we ever completely come out the other side. I am not sure we can or ever should. But is it possible to live this way? Is it possible to feel sorrow for the rest of our lives and yet to find joy at the same time? Is it possible to enter the darkness and still live an ordinary productive life? Loss requires that we must live in a delicate tension. We must mourn but we must also go on living. What Jerry is saying is true is that part of being a Christian, a significant part of being a Christian, is that uh, as we travel this journey, the the further we walk along, oftentimes the more the loss increases, and therefore the more the sorrow increases. But the beautiful irony in this is that so does the enlargement of our hearts and our soul. It's something that is sort of this unique coexistence. I remember this uh, this, this, um uh, Celesta Tracy, she has a, a ministry in, in town where she, uh, she works with, uh, she, she does work in the Congo with her and her husband, Steve Tracy, and they work with uh, prostitutes and so child soldiers in Africa. And she says this, that the joy and sorrow, it's like they exist side by side. They coexist. You can't have one without the other. If you're not willing to experience sorrow, you will not be able to experience joy. You can't separate the two. Uh, it's like, it's like the, the decaying matter around the tree. It provides the fertilizer for the flowers around the stump to grow up. Um, so, how do we do this? How do we live in this delicate tension? How do we mourn but also go on living? Uh, And I wanted to give an example of something that that might feel kind of unusual, but I'm kind of an unusual guy, so I thought this was a cool example. And and I really, you know, this is something that has really been helpful for me and has meant a lot to me. Um, uh, Next slide. Um, And it was the it's the making of one of the most successful albums uh, this past century, Uh, the Joshua Tree, produced by U two, released on March 9th, nineteen eighty seven. Uh, was was critically and commercially acclaimed and continues to do so. Uh, but what many people might not know or might not realize is that three of the members of the band um, are are practicing Christians and began U two as as uh, I think I think teenagers or early twenties in Ireland uh, and they were involved in a number of Christian ministries and they were Christians who told them listen. Uh, you, you can't you can't do this. You can't go into rock and you can't be a Christian. You can only make Christian music, and that's really your only option. And they decided that they wanted to do things differently. And what they wanted to do was um, create a third way. And so, utilizing a verse from the Old Testament and talking about how there was a highway through the desert uh, that the Lord would bring His people through, uh, they would have sensed that would be kind of the paradigm of how they understood their music. That they would they would walk a very sort of narrow path through the difficult scene of, of contemporary rock music. And so um, this album, I believe it was their fifth album, uh, came off the heels of 1986, which was an incredibly bad year for the band. Bono and his wife were having a very difficult time in their marriage. Um, they were criticized by the Irish media for their involvement in the self-aid event. Bono's personal assistant, Greg Carroll, was killed in a motorcycle accident and it 's no surprise that during this time they were attracted to the image of the desert, a barren place, because this is what served as the metaphorical guide for their music and how they would understand their music bono says this that 's why the desert attracted us as an image that really that year was really a desert for us. Uh, they were drawn to, they were drawn to America, the the beauty and the brokenness of america and they, and they really used that time as a sort of musical pilgrimage, both in in terms of their, their, their aesthetic roots in the Irish tradition, but also in uh, with songs like I, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For where they were looking at gospel songs and how that could inform and, and, and influence their music. And their music, as we see in albums like The Joshua Tree, really reflects this delicate tension of there is significant beauty and there's also significant brokenness in the world. The song I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For has often been criticized, particularly within the Christian community, Abano says this, I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. He's, he's giving a definitive declaration of his faith. But Then he goes on to say, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What's going on there? Well, he would say that this is, this is a sort of gospel for the restless spirit. But there is an honesty and there's also a pointing to, to faith. And that's reflective in their music. And I think that that really mirrors what happens in the Psalms. That's what happened in the letters that Mother Teresa wrote, is there's a deep honesty about the true realities of life. That being a Christian isn't called to a Pollyanna existence. It's called to experience life as it really is with all the horrors of living apart from Eden, a living life apart from God. That life is intensely broken, uh, this side of Eden, but it's also intensely beautiful. And so we're called as believers to live in that delicate tension, to be honest, but be hope forward and, and, and hope thinking. Well, ultimately, how do we do this? I mean, when we, when we encounter loss, which happens far too frequently in our lives, uh, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming, to say the least. An experience of the dark night of the soul to feel lonely and isolated and your own inner life doesn't make any sense to experience the death of loved ones, the death of relationships, of job promises, job opportunities, that's, that's overwhelming as well. And if it were up to us and our resources to say, you know what, I can just do it. I can live in the delicate tension on my own. I have, I have the capabilities because I've read enough of these books and I've listened to enough of these classes and enough sermons. Um, we need to look at the ultimate dark night of the soul. And in Matthew 26, 36-38, we see Christ entering into uh, a kind of dark night that none of us will experience his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death where he's, he's shedding blood. And what's so, what's so heartbreaking and so beautiful about that moment is that he's honest. God, if this is not your will, let this cup pass from me. But he's also exuding the ultimate kind of greatness. But your will be done. Whatever happens, your will be done. And so we know that when we look to the one who experienced the ultimate dark night of the soul, the ultimate kind of separation, we too, we too can follow in his path and in his footsteps and know that regardless of the outcome, God will never leave us, he'll never abandon us. Though we may feel like that at times and though we may feel like the, the darkness can envelop and overwhelm us, God is ultimately there to bring us through. So, two takeaways for tonight. The first is this. Um, in, in talking about the dark night of the soul, um, just consider it. That's all I would ask, is that you just consider this as a possibility that this could and and might happen and and that what John and Teresa are saying uh, could actually be true in the definitive language that they give. So just consider that as a feature and and kind of think through that and sit on it, wrestle with it. Um, The second is this. um, Is there a place in your life, whether it's currently, um, whether it's happened recently, Or perhaps even in your past, where you didn't make the journey into the darkness, or you didn't make the journey into the darkness, perhaps like you should have with God. That there are places in your life and in your past that you haven't yet fully grieved. Uh, And that could be any number of things. Uh, For us, that means going back a week. For others, it means going back deep into their childhood and looking at those things. God will bring about the healing and restoration. It is up to us, though, to be willing to say, I'm going to travel that way. So ask God, and I think this is really the most difficult and delicate question I could ask of you to ask of yourselves to God is, God, is there any place in my life where I haven't traveled into the darkness for fear of what I think might happen if I do? Um, Guys, let me pray. Thank you so much, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Father, um, these are uh, these are these are delicate truths, God, but I believe they're also encouraging. Um, and God, I thank you that we have the resources in you, in your Son, Father God, that there is no experience of suffering, there is no experience of loss, God, that you can't guide us through, Lord. Um, Father, I pray that we know it's not up to us, Lord, that it's you who arranges for our liberation. It is you who arranges for our healing. And so, Father, I pray um, that our hearts would be open. We'd be willing to, um, to travel into the places of our lives, perhaps that we might not want to. Um, and, Lord, when we do travel and, and make those, those difficult journeys, God, I, I pray grace, 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 grace upon my brothers and sisters here. Uh, thank you for them, for their hearts. I pray over them, uh, pray over all of us until we meet again next week. In your name. Amen.